Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to dive in because we've got uh, a lot to cover. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us life through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us light through your word, that you do not leave us to grope around in the darkness, but that you teach us clearly from your word what it is you expect of us, what it is you have done for us, because we have fallen short of your expectation, Lord. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Now please grant us more mercy and grace as we try to come to your word to understand what we should believe about your word. We ask your blessing over our meeting tonight in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so the Baptist faith and message. Um, Uh, This is my go along. So the Baptist faith and message, you'll see the first time that it was kind of compiled was in 1925. And it was formulated, Southern Baptists came together uh, ultimately for mission work. That was kind of the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention. There were some Baptists in the South that owned slaves, and they were told that they could not go and be missionaries because they owned slaves. And so essentially they formed the Southern Baptist Convention so that they could remain slave owners and still go be missionaries. Now we look at that now and we're like, that is messed up. But that just is what it is. We have to own our history on these things. So Southern Baptists today do not endorse slavery. We do not propose that people continue in slavery. We believe that it is an evil that should never be uh, practiced or participated in. But that is part of the founding of our, of our convention. So what the Southern Baptist Convention is, it's not an authoritative body that declares that we must do anything. It cannot hold us as a Southern Baptist church to do certain things. Rather, it is a voluntary organization of churches that all come together and say, for the sake of missions around the world, let's pull our money together and see if we can raise up missionaries for North America. That's the North America Mission Board. For international missions, that's the IMB, International Mission Board, sending our missionaries throughout the world. We've also put together several seminaries that train up our missionaries, train up pastors. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary. I went to the Southern Baptist seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And so we have six seminaries that raise up men and women for ministry around the world. So what the Baptist faith and message does is it gives us kind of a baseline. If we're going to cooperate in ministry together, there's certain things that we should agree upon as we try to partner together. I don't want to give my money to someone that has a fundamental difference of belief when it comes to the Bible and say, take my money and go out and do ministry. I want someone who's going to represent what I believe needs to be spread around the world. So what the Baptist faith and message does is it gives us kind of this standard. We all agree on these things, and this should guide our ministry moving out into the world. Now, things outside of this we may disagree on, and that's okay. We can still partner together for the sake of God's work, even though we disagree on these things. Okay. So the Baptist faith and message just kind of gives us a good foundation, and it was originally formulated based off of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. The New Hampshire Confession of Faith. I have a copy of that here in my folder. I printed off a copy. Um, This was in 1833 by J. Newton Brown. Looks like it's got 18 articles in it. I've read through them. There are a lot of similarities to what we have, obviously, because the first committee 
used that as the foundation for our Baptist faith and message. So if you want even more homework on top of this to try to see the history of these things unfolding, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, um, really, really good. All three of our committees that have put this together in um, 1925, 1963, and 2000, they all kind of gave a report that's available online. You can also come and see me, and I have a copy of their report here with some key similarities and differences. If you're curious on some of that stuff, you can come and see me on that later and nerd out with me. Otherwise, you can just take some notes on what we're going to start on today. So what we've got before us today is the first article. We're starting with the scriptures. And uh, I've given it to you on that paper, kind of broken down the 1925, 1963, and 2000, so that you can see how that has changed over time. You'll see that most of the first one in 1925 remained intact for 1963 and 2000. The main differences is they haven't really taken out much, but they've gone through and added a few things. So I'm going to, I know it's going to be hard to see, but I've got highlighted yellow the things that are common in all three. You'll see almost all of the first one is highlighted yellow. So when they've come back in the future to add or to um, tweak things in the Baptist faith and message, uh, rarely have they just taken out large chunks of it. Maybe there's been times that they've had to go back and add clarity for some issues. So why is it that we would need to add clarity? If God's word never changes, if these gentlemen had a good grasp on these things, why is it that we needed clarity? Well, in 1963, the formulation of a committee to readdress the Baptist faith and message kind of came together around the idea of evolution being taught in our schools. This idea was becoming more and more popular, and so we needed clarification because some people were coming to the scriptures and saying, okay, we have to wrestle with creation and scripture, but then science is proposing this evolution. How do we make light of this? How do we understand the scriptures in light of what science seems to be revealing? And there were a lot of different theories of how to handle that. Well, maybe... Maybe all of the Bible isn't completely accurate. It's, it's accurate with everything with faith, but then, you know, it's not a science textbook, so we shouldn't come to this for any scientific truth. Or maybe there were different methods for interpreting the scripture. Well, we're going to interpret Genesis through allegory. So there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of confusion and disagreement. And so they came together, Southern Baptists, and said, hey, we need some clarity on these things to know what we should believe moving forward. So then fast forward again to 2000, and we have the inerrancy debate and the infallibility of Scripture. So there were some that would say, yes, Scripture is infallible and inerrant. There are some who would not affirm both of those. And so there needed to be more clarification to clarify what we believe about the Scriptures. So that's kind of a brief overview of that. Um, I'm going to go through what I did on your note-taking sheet there, is I went through the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message and pulled every phrase into one of several categories. So it's not exactly in order. If you'll start at the beginning here, you'll see um, that we believe the scriptures were written by men divinely inspired. And then I put God's revelation of himself to man, then God for its author. So I've gone through and got every phrase that was related to this idea and put it together. 
so that we can think about it a little more methodically. That's the way that I'm going to be going through it for us. But you can refer to your other sheet. Um, everything in green was something that was added from uh, that the previous edition didn't have. Everything in red is something that the previous edition had and then the current edition changed or took out. And we can I'll open up some for some questions for that a little bit later. So starting at the beginning here, written by men divinely inspired. God's word, uh, God's revelation of himself to man, God for its author, testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 21, 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 through 21. This summarizes well. This is one of the verses that they used in their references there to talk about what it means that the Bible was written by men who were divinely inspired, but it has also got God as its author. Well, what does that mean? How should we understand this? Okay, 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 through 21. You can follow along as I read. Um, he kind of starts mid-sentence here, so it'll sound weird. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is known as uh, the doctrine of inspiration, but there's another uh, phrase that we use. It's called the dual authorship of Scripture. It means that the Bible has two authors. It has Second Peter had an author, a human author, Peter. But then through Peter, the divine author was composing his text, his word, and that is God. So we can think about it like a straw that's designed to take liquid from a cup and put it into my mouth. The straw serves as a vessel to carry something from one location to the other. So these men were essentially vessels for the Lord. This wasn't a dictation thing where God said, okay, I want you to write down every word that I tell you. And he said these things and they just wrote it verbatim. It wasn't like that. It wasn't something where they just went into a trance and their hands just went as they were led along by the Lord. It isn't like that. God, through the Holy Spirit, uses each unique human author to compose every word that God intended to be recorded in the scriptures. It is an amazing doctrine, an amazing truth, and it's reassuring for us because it's a reminder that this isn't, and I try to say this as often as I can on Sunday mornings, this isn't just a book of human opinions, even though men wrote these books. This is God's divine word. So when we gather around this, yes, men wrote these the words on the pages from the original autographs, but ultimately God is the author of Scripture. And we see that right here in, in 2 Peter. So the focus, notice the phrase there, testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. The focus of the Scriptures is to testify to Christ. Jesus, when he's walking on the road to Emmaus, with a couple, of, um, a couple of men, and they're talking about everything that's taken place. And Jesus walks them through to show them how everything in the law and the prophets points forward to him. Now, um, some additions and subtractions here. You'll notice 
1963 Baptist Faith and Message added this phrase. That the scripture, we believe the scriptures are the record of God's revelation of himself to man. And then the 2000 version kept this, but they removed the record of. Okay, So the record of God's revelation of himself to man. And then 2000 just says God's revelation of himself to man. And trying to think through this, why do you think they thought this might be a necessary adjustment? Any ideas? Okay. How might that, how might that be misunderstood? Uh, you're right. You're on the right track here. What's the danger of that? Okay. That's right. You were increasing man's role in interpreting what this book says. And, and at the time, knowing what was happening, people were in the inerrancy debate in 2000. People would say, well, look, I, I know that this is a record of what happened, but we think that some things might have been recorded wrong. OK. And so now they made this change. OK, well, it's not a record of God's revelation. This is revelation. This is special revelation. So they took this record of God's revelation out to try to add clarity in the midst of the debate going on at that time. Um, another difference is some people would say the Bible contains God's word, but it itself is not God's word. And that's the confusion they're trying to avoid here. We don't just believe that this contains God's word. We believe that this is God's word. Because if it contains God's word, it could also contain some words that maybe aren't God's words. And so they're trying to avoid that confusion there. This is God's word. Another addition or um, uh, some clarification here, the 1963 version added this phrase. The scriptures are the criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted. The criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. And then the 2000 version actually just changed that. They kept the idea, but they changed it and said, all scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So again, the first implies that the revelation of God is hidden inside the scriptures, which must be uncovered. And the way to do that is to take the teaching of scripture, look at Jesus and say, okay, how can I correctly interpret this now in light of Jesus and they could take something and make it mean something that it never meant by running it through this lens. A common way that we hear that today is we have to use the red letters to judge the black letters in the Bible. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But the idea is that uh, the 1963 Jesus is the criterion for interpretation. Well, in 2000, they said, let's take out this idea of interpretation. What we're trying to say is. All scripture testifies to Christ. He's the focus of the book. The Old Testament points forward to Christ, while the New Testament points at and backwards to Christ. That's the whole point of this here. So it all points to Jesus. So the next, um, the next section here, uh, the collection of statements. Uh, the scriptures are a perfect treasure of divine instruction. I believe the first one said heavenly instruction. Uh, reveals the principles by which God judges us. It is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions 
should be tried. Here I'd like to turn to Acts 17 verse 11. Acts chapter 17 verse 11. And while you're turning there, I'll fill the silence by saying there's a lot of scripture references. I left them all on your paper, including the ones that were added. So the 63 and 2000 added several verses to that that the first didn't have. They're all good, but for time's sake, we're not going to go through and look at all of these. So I just kind of picked some out for us. So Acts chapter 17, and uh, I'm going to go down and read verse 11 for us. It says that uh, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the idea here is that the Bereans heard some teaching and said, okay, we need to know if this is true. Let's look to the scriptures. The scriptures are a standard of judgment. They are a measuring tool used to ascertain whether something is true or trustworthy. So the words that we see here in the Baptist faith and message, they use the word instruction, principles, standard. What this means is that the Bible is meant to lead, guide, and direct God's people. It is intended to be followed and to change the way that we think and act. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says that the scriptures are able to make of the Christian complete for every good work. So they're intended to be taken and used. It is a standard in order to live by. But it is also a standard of judgment. It says um, the, that it reveals the principles by which God judges us. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. This is actually altered. The 1963 altered it. The original in 25 was by which God will judge us. And the 63 altered it to say by which God judges us. So the difference here obviously is pretty clear. Will judge refers to a future judgment. And then judges refers to present judgment. Why do you think that that change is significant? Or do you think it is significant? Do you think it's insignificant? It makes him sound like you're not interested until the end game. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. God cares about what's going on in the here and now. Mm-hmm. Right. That's good. That's excellent. So again, remember, 1963, they're facing the rise of evolution and the Bible, the relevance of the scriptures is in question. So they want to get away from uh, this isn't just about future things. This is about things now. The Bible is still relevant. And even now, as you know, we're looking back in history, even now, 2023, the Bible is still relevant and it will be. Okay, Um, so God's standard of judgment. This isn't just mere opinion. This is an expectation. And and I like the phrase they they, um, said here in all three iterations, I believe. Um, It's the supreme standard by which all human conduct creeds and religious opinions should be tried. So let's say that we were going through the Baptist faith and message and we found something that just didn't make a lot of sense. I'm sorry. We found something that didn't make a lot of sense. Should this be in here? The scriptures are what we should use to try what that says. Everything that we're studying now, we should look and say, okay, is there anything in the scriptures that seems to disagree with this? So even the Baptist faith and message is fallible. That this is... I'm sorry. 
It's a student from a previous youth group, and he's trying to, trying to get in touch with me. Um, the Baptist faith and message is fallible. The scriptures are not. So the scriptures sit in judgment over everything that we are looking at right here. Okay. Um, so to put it simply, if my opinion says one thing, but the Bible says something different, we believe as Southern Baptists that the Bible trumps my opinion on that. That's what it means by trying the opinions. So the next uh, phrase here, salvation for its end. And actually in the context of the Baptist faith and message, it says that it has God as its author. Um, salvation for its end, and then uh, truth without any mixture of error for its matter. So there's who wrote it, what the purpose is, what it's composed of. God wrote it. He wrote it that we would be saved, and everything that it contains is true. We will look at that here in just a moment. So with this idea of salvation for its end, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. <clears throat> I referenced this a little bit earlier. I referenced 16 and 17, but we're going to back up a verse now. So Paul is writing to Timothy here. And he's telling him in verse 14 to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And then verse 15, he continues this idea and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's one more verse I want to turn to here. First Peter chapter one, verse 23. First Peter chapter one. Verse 23. So 2 Timothy 3.15, the scriptures, the sacred writings, make you wise for salvation. And then here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, says, uh, comes in mid-sentence, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. If we take that phrase out of the middle there and just put the two halves together, you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. So the scriptures have salvation for its end. That's the goal. Which means that in our evangelism, we ought to be using the scriptures as much as possible. We believe that the scriptures contain the message of salvation. So we ought to memorize and study and know God's word so that we can communicate to others what God's word is communicating to us about salvation. The next group of uh, phrases here, um, truth without any mixture of error for its matter. All scripture is totally true and trustworthy. So um, for this one here, uh, the, the Baptist faith and message included John 17, 17, um, sanctify us with your truth. Your word is truth. Uh, I want to turn to Numbers 23, 19. They don't have this as their reference. If you want to write it down, uh, you can. Numbers uh, 23, 19. And, uh, and I'm not sure why this one didn't make the cut if it just kind of... Um, just kind of fell through the cracks. I think that this would be a worthy addition personally. But especially in light that God has authored the scriptures, this is, this is crucial for us. 
in the scripture's trustworthiness. Numbers 23, verse 19. And here's what it says. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So God does not lie. God does not change his mind. But he did. Ah. How often? Not very often, but he did change his mind. There are two places in Scripture. I believe it's just two. Someone else can maybe correct me on this in a little bit. I, I believe it's two places. Where some translations say God relented. Some translations say God changed his mind. I would love to dive into that. I'm not going to dive into it right now. I would still argue that God does not change his mind. And I can explain I can explain why I believe that that's the case in those specific passages. But for our purposes right now, and we'll come back to that. Um, I, in fact, I might, I might start off next week with that. Um, as far as the scriptures go, we agree and affirm that the scriptures contain truth without any mixture of error for its matter. If God lied or could change his mind, then the scriptures might either currently not be true or might not be true in the future. Okay, It could be that it was true in the past, but God changed his mind. Or it could be that it's been false the whole time because God told a lie. So the truthfulness and trustworthiness of Scripture is dependent upon the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God. You cannot affirm one and affirm the other. If God never lies and the Bible is God's word, then God's word cannot lie or else God has lied. And if God's word has lied, then we can't say, well, God's not a liar because his word has lied. So they are crucial. They are dependent upon one another. And, and again, I'm not certain why they um, did not include that reference there, um, but I think it's at least noteworthy for us. Now, the 2000 version added, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. Um, the previous iterations of this did not contain this. Uh, without this phrase... The Bible's authority shifts from God to man who decides which parts of the Bible are to be followed. If I can't trust all of it, well, now we need someone to stand before us and to say, this is the part you can trust. This is the part you can't trust. I think we can all see the danger of someone having that kind of power over the scriptures. The entirety of the scriptures are true and trustworthy. This last um, section here on your notes, and then we'll give some, some application. It says that it is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union. Um, I, I want to look, I really would like to look at all, all these. I don't know if we will. Um, for sure, let's look at uh, Joshua chapter 8, verses 34 through 35. Joshua 8, 34 through 35. <clears throat> And then we're going to look at Nehemiah also here in just a moment. But um, we're going to start here. Joshua 8, 34 through 35. So again, this is in the context of the scriptures being now and till the end of the world, the center of Christian union. Listen to this. It says, afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. 
There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So all of Israel has gathered together. It says specifically the assembly of Israel. Usually they counted just the men in that culture. So it clarifies not just the men, but also the women and the little ones and the ones who were sojourning in the land. They all got together and they had the written book of the law there before them, read before the assembly. So kind of related to this is our one in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And uh, I think this really is worth reading in its entirety. So Nehemiah chapter 8, I am going to read all eight of these verses here. Listen to this description. I know some of you are still turning, but I'm going to go ahead and start. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. It says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right. And Padiah, Mishael, Milkijah, Hashum, Hashbanana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in all the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodai, Masai, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Palai, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I hope you can picture as I'm reading the scene that's unfolding. All the people gathered together. They built a huge wooden platform so that someone could get up onto the platform and open up God's word and read it. And as he opened to read, everyone stood and bowed in worship and shouted out, Amen. And he read, it says, from morning until midday, just reading the scriptures. And there's these men who have gathered around and people are hearing the law read. And as they have questions, there's men there who are able to help interpret and to say, here's what that means. I hear your question. Here's what this means. This is the center of their union. This is what they gather around. This is why we gather each week and we gather around God's word and we get in our church building and we sing God's praises and then we listen to the preaching of the word. This is the center of our union. I also don't understand why this passage didn't make the cut, but um, that's also not. That's Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8, if you want to write that down. 
So um, this is why denominations exist. Uh, unfortunately, we're in a fallen world and we're going to have denominations. They gather around what they believe the scriptures teach. And they say, if you want to unite with us, this is what we believe about the scriptures. This should be the center of our unity. The center of our unity should not be on these uh, extra things outside these peripheral issues. It should be um, upon the scriptures. And what this also means is that when a disagreement pops up, this is to what we should turn. And if this cannot resolve the disagreement, the question should become, I believe, is our disagreement worthy of division? If the Bible doesn't address it, I don't believe. I think there might be some instances that that might be necessary, but typically I don't believe that it should be. So um, there's some information on why the changes, why the additions. Um, I'm going to give some applications, and then I'll open it up for questions, and then I think that we'll be um, right out of time. If we don't have time for questions, we might um, kind of allow that for next week. Um, so some application for us. I've got uh, on the back there four postures towards God's word. I've got three misconceptions for us to avoid, and then three commitments to God's word. So four postures towards God's word. Here's number one. I'm just going to give you all four. Number one is reverence. The first posture, reverence. Posture number two, trust. Reverence and trust. Posture number three, allegiance. Posture three, allegiance. And posture four, Loving devotion. Loving devotion. So reverence, trust, allegiance, loving devotion. Reverence, we have to recognize that God is speaking. This is a divine activity. When we read God's word, God is talking to us. We believe that as Southern Baptists and as Christians. Trust Because the scriptures are trustworthy and their end is salvation, we need to trust when the scripture speaks. There will be times that the scriptures speak and it might not make sense to you in that moment. We still need to trust while we study to discern and to try to learn and to grow. This isn't a blind trust. We don't trust it for no reason. We trust it for a good reason. God is its author. So we trust the scriptures. Number three, allegiance. Remembering that the Bible is the center of Christian union, we ought to submit collectively to God's word. It should judge our conduct, our creeds, and our religious opinions using the verbiage from the Baptist faith in message. This is what has my allegiance is God's word. I am committed to it and devoted to it, which leads into number four, loving devotion. There's this phrase in there, um, this uh, that the scriptures are a perfect treasure of divine instruction. I'm going to read uh, Jeremiah 15:16 for us, and actually, I think this is one that they have in their uh, references. Um, Jeremiah 15:16. Here's what it says: Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. God's words ought to be a delight and a joy for us because we are called by the Lord. Now, someone who does not know the Lord will not believe that God's word is a delight and a joy. They won't understand what we mean when we say that. 
But for those who have tasted the scriptures, I think it's Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. For those who have tasted its sweetness, we know and we affirm this is a treasure for us. So we ought to be lovingly devoted to God's word, to delight in God's word. So there's four postures we ought to take. Here's three misconceptions to avoid, and we see this especially in some of the additions and and the adjustments here. Number one, the first misconception. The Bible can be trustworthy, but not totally true. It's a misconception. The Bible can be trustworthy, but not totally true. Now, this might sound profound on the surface. We might think of a human example Someone isn't trustworthy, but they say something that's true. Okay, so it might sound profound on the surface, but think about what we're saying. If we believe this, you cannot trust what is false. If the Bible contains information that is false, you cannot trust that you might can trust part of the Bible. But then the question becomes, how do I know what I can and can't trust? Trustworthiness and its truthfulness are both related, and you cannot have one without the other. The moment we give up the truthfulness of the Bible, we give up its trustworthiness. Okay, it's the first misconception we need to avoid. Second misconception the words of Jesus carry more weight than the other words. The words of Jesus, the red words of the Bible, carry more weight. Then the other words, the black words, this is a misconception that we need to avoid. The words of Jesus carry more weight than the other words. The red words in the Bible were not written in red. In fact, when it was written, there weren't spaces between the letters. There weren't capital letters. It was all lowercase, all bunched up right next to each other. So if you want to get technical, that's how we received them. Okay, The red words were added I think it's 1899. I think it's right around the 1900 mark. So we've had them for just over 100 years, not even in every Bible translation. In fact, uh, okay, mine does. Mine has the red letters here. I don't believe my pocket one does. I think it's in black. So the red letters came way, way later. Jesus has said every word in this book. Jesus' words are not just the red letters. (laughs) They're the black letters too. God has spoken. So Jesus said what Jesus said, and Jesus said, Jesus said. It's all God's word. It's all Jesus' words, okay? There's not uh, layers of, of God's word within God's word. Number three, third misconception. All interpretations are valid. All interpretations are valid. This is a misconception that we need to avoid, okay? All interpretations are not valid. There is a right interpretation and a wrong interpretation or else the Bible could not be a standard of judgment. If you can interpret it multiple ways, it ought not to be a standard. If I can interpret a stop sign more than one way, I shouldn't get a ticket when I run it. We have to have something that it means and something that it doesn't mean. Now, with that being said... Multiple interpretations might all make sense, but that doesn't mean they're all right. And there will be some situations. I'll give you a perfect example. Revelation study. We have two brothers that are pastors of two different churches here. 
One gets up and says, the angels of the churches are referring to angels. The other brother gets up and says, the angels of the churches are referring to the pastors of those churches. They both explain their interpretation, how they got there. And we might walk away from both of those saying, that makes a lot of sense. You hear the other one. Oh, (laughs) that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Okay, well, maybe they're both right. They're not both right. One is right and one is wrong. We may not know which one is right right now, but we need to at least recognize that it can't all be right. There is a right way to interpret and a wrong way to interpret. We need to be careful that we are studying the scriptures well so that we make valid interpretations. We can disagree on some of these issues because multiple interpretations make sense. So you know what? I can at least agree to disagree on this because I see that you have approached the scripture with authority. So those are the three misconceptions. Here's three quick commitments to God's word. And if you want to write out um, Ezra 7.10 next to this, the three commitments here, that is kind of the foundation for these commitments based on what I see here in the Baptist faith and message. So Ezra, and in fact, I'm going to go ahead and read that for us real quick so that you see um, kind of uh, why I've done that here. Um, Ezra 7.10. Here's here's what it says. It says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Here's our three commitments to God's word. Number one, to study. We should commit to study God's word and to know it deeply. If it's a standard of judgment, we should know it. Just like we should seek to know what the law is in our city, town, state, country, wherever we live. We should seek to know the laws so that we know that we're not breaking them. We should study these things. It is a standard of judgment. We ought to know it deeply. So the first commitment to study. Second commitment is to obey it. To obey it. So not only do I know what it says, but I am using the Bible as it's intended to be a judge for my conduct. And when I see myself out of line with God's word, since it's the center of Christian union, I want to come together with my brothers and sisters and all change according to God's word. We ought to obey it. And then number three, to share it. So to study, to obey, and to share God's word. If we believe that God will judge the world by what's written in this book, and if we truly love our brothers and sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our grandparents, our children, our grandchildren, we will share with them this book. Because apart from salvation through Christ Jesus, they will be judged for their sin. They will be in hell for eternity. If we believe that, we will commit to sharing this. It is, it is too weighty of an issue to not. It's too weighty. If God is going to judge the world by this book, we better commit to sharing it. And I want to end with this, um, with this phrase, study, obey, share. We will not do these if we do not treasure God's word. So I hope that you treasure God's word. I hope that it excites you knowing more about God's word, what it says and what it doesn't say. How should I come to these hard passages that that I know that the Bible's true, but it really looks like I'm seeing one thing here and one thing here. Do not. If we believe the Bible is true, we have nothing to be afraid of. Lean into those interpretive issues. 
There are answers to be had for these things. We just have to study to discover these things, okay? Um, so we are right at the 45-minute mark there. Thank you for your patience. Um, I, will, uh, I, I will pray for us first, and then if you have a commitment you need to get to, you can. And then anybody that wants to hang around and ask some questions, I'll, I'll kind of do that. So I'll pray. We'll be officially dismissed, but I'll still do some Q&A after that. So let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Southern Baptist Convention and for giving us a mechanism with which we can come together and pull our resources together with other like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ in order to spread your word throughout the nations. Lord, thank you for giving us uh, this document, the Baptist Faith and Message, for us to be able to pull together the broad teaching of your word in an easy-to-access format so that we can quickly, at a glance, Look over and explain and teach others what we believe about what your word teaches. Help us to be faithful interpreters of your word. And Lord, this week as we go out into the world, help us to be faithful appliers of your word as we apply these truths to our lives daily. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.